Good morning. It's that time of year where we're going to start seeing and being inundated. Take two. <clears throat> Good morning. It's that time of year where we're going to start being inundated with all these top fives. And it can be exhausting, it can be fun, it could be all over the place, really. Today, in the scripture, we're going to be going into one of the top five known stories that comes from the Bible. I mean, when you think of stories from the scriptures, you think of David and Goliath, you think of Jesus' birth, you think of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and you also think about Daniel and the lion's den. Now, in, in Daniel thus far, we've been looking at how Daniel is an example of what it means to be faithful in the midst of exile. How do we as exiles, you and I, followers of Jesus, live as foreigners and exiles, but still flourish according to the kingdom principles that he lays out in the Sermon on the Mount? And today, as we look at Daniel and come to the conclusion of the narrative portion of Daniel, this is the end of the story of Daniel, and we're going to start going into the prophecies of Daniel in chapters 7 through 12. So as we come to a conclusion in the narrative portion, we're going to see and look at how Daniel lived in exile and how he engaged culture. And what does that mean for you and me, Christians in exile, how we engage culture by being faithfully present. So let's go ahead and retell the story together. At the end of chapter 5, Daniel is now under the leadership of his third king in the empire. This is King Darius. King Darius sets up his government in a way that he has these 120 satraps, or let's just use the term governors, to be leading um, his area. And above them are three leaders, of which Daniel is one of them. So you can sense these uh, jealousy amongst these officials or governors. And so they're trying to figure out a way to make sure that Daniel gets out of his position. But they know that they can't find anything against him unless, as it says in chapter 5, they find corruption or in connection with the law of his God. So they go to Darius and um, get Darius to sign a decree or an injunction that says that for, if anybody's to pray to another God or another man for 30 days other than King Darius, they were to be sentenced to death in the lion's den. Darius agrees, and in verse 10, we see Daniel's response. <clears throat> when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where the windows in the upper chamber opened towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had previously done. So we know that Daniel knows what's happening. Daniel knows the document's been signed. And yet he goes about continuing, it's continuing in his faithfulness to God. He continues to pray for them. He knows he's going to be seen. He knows what he's about to do is breaking the law of the land. And yet he still does it. The governors, they see him. 
they go to Darius and they say, hey, did King, old King live forever. Did you sign this decree? Um, and hey, by the way, this Daniel, he's gone about disobeying and he's done the very thing you're not supposed to. And what's funny is <clears throat> in this text, you don't hear a lot about what Daniel's thinking or what Daniel's feeling. You, but you do see a lot about what's happening in the life of Darius in the midst of this. Darius was distressed and he set his mind to deliver Daniel, verse 14. <clears throat> but when he knew that he couldn't, he, the next morning after throwing Daniel into the lion's den, he shows up with haste and in a tone of anguish, Daniel, is your, your God whom you continually serve, did he save you? And from the bottom of the den, he could hear Daniel yelling, um, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel to shut the, the mouths of the lion because I have, was found blameless before him and I was blameless before you. And so Daniel is rescued by God. He's, he's uh, brought out of the lion's den. And as a consequence, all the governors that were part of this coup went into the lion's den. And at the end of it, Darius makes this decree, uh, causing people to tremble and fear before God of Daniel, that he's the living God, that he endures forever. His dominion shall never end or be destroyed. He is the one who saved Daniel. And so we see that how Daniel is interacting and excuse me we get another glimpse of how Daniel interacts with the culture and the empire of the day. And so before we really start to look at it and look at Daniel specifically, what I want to do is I want to look at our day and age. And before we look at Daniel and before we look at how we are too, I want to ask the question, how has it been done up to this point? What are different ways in which Christians have tried to engage their culture? What are ways in which the, the, us Christians have had different postures in how we engage culture and the land in which we live? So what I'm about to do is a very broad stroke. It's a survey or a sketch, if you will. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of things that because of this medium, we're not able to share. But also, I want you to realize that you have likely been influenced and formed in one or more of these three different postures. And so I want you to do some self-reflection on how you've seen and heard these different postures. And so I'm going to use the framework that's laid out in James Davison Hunter's book, To Change the World, about how Christians have um, had a posture in engaging the world. So the first one is what he calls defensive against. So Christians have a defensive against posture. The idea here is that Christian is prime, excuse me, America is primarily a Christian nation. And so the main problem is that there's a massive force of secularization that's coming against the ways in which we are used to. And so these assaults on our values and our way of life needs to be defended against. The two ways in which that has been predominantly done. The first is by evangelizing the lost. 
The thinking is, if you get enough people that are Christians in your day, you can start to influence culture. Culture. The other side of it is, is that there's an underpinning that <clears throat> culture's really not that important. This created world's not that big of a deal. So you have a lot of people that are proclaiming a gospel that is primarily be saved so you can get into heaven and not go to hell. Some people call this fire insurance or life insurance, if you will. And that's the primary motif. So culture is not a big deal. What The only thing that's important is making sure that you have a ticket to heaven, quote, unquote. That's kind of the open-handed way of defensive against. But there's also a clenched fist way in which it's defensive against. And this is the uh, aggressive form of it. And it's primarily through political power we try to maintain the uh, cultural position that Christians have maintained, and we do it through political power. Now, if we can't get in power, we get close to people that are in power so that they can be influenced by us, so that they can go about doing what we want them to do through the power in which they have, and we get it for our good. So generally speaking, that's the defensive against posture. The second one is relevance to. The interaction between cultures and, and Christians at this point is that the Christians that buy into this or believe this are influenced by that there's a lack of connection between culture. That uh, church is old-fashioned. It's, um, it's out of date, and we need to make it more relevant to the people. It also has an understanding that Christians aren't likable. And so therefore, we need to do whatever we can to make sure that we are perceived to be likable. A lot of times in especially the secret uh, sensitive movement of the 90s and the early 2000s, this showed up in like felt needs. So you meet, if Christians are unlikable, you have to earn their likability, which means you serve them. And by serving them, they like you, which means you can then proclaim the gospel and get them to heaven. Kind of similar to um, the first posture, but with a little bit different of a nuance. But the relevance side of it also showed up in the progressive portion of the church. And this became so relevant that there was no distinctiveness they started to lose their understanding that the Bible is God's word. They started to question whether this uh, Jesus actually did the things he did, says, say the things he did, and whether he was actually divine. So in that part of the um, relevance too, you lost the distinctiveness of the creeds and the scriptures and what Jesus has led uh, and taught from generation to generation. <clears throat> Defensive against posture, relevance to posture, the last is what I'll call purity from. <clears throat> in this posture, it's the same idea as the defensive against, that the problem is the secularization of our people. But the nuance here is that we have to persevere Christian faithfulness by not engaging and not being defiled. So this was a removal from culture. This was an us versus them mentality. Us who are the light and they are the darkness. And this, in essence, created a Christian subculture. Different music, different art, different ways of being in this subculture 
that would not allow us to be defiled. And if we were to dab our toes in listening to this music or going over here, we would be defiled, okay? If that third one, purity from, is tended to be more legalistic, relevance too tended to be more licentious. They allowed people to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. So that's the way in which dominant uh, ways in which Christians have engaged in this culture. But what did Daniel do? And what does it mean to give us another way to look at it? So if you look at Daniel, we see that he did live distinctively. He, so much so that his accusers knew that the way in which he could be thrown in the lion's den is by connecting his actions to the law of his God. He was amongst them. He worked among them so well that they knew his life. They knew what he stood for. And he was still faithful to it, even to the point of his death. So he had a distinctiveness in how he lived. There were times when he protested against the empire. He drew the line in the sand and said, I will not let my identity come from you and what you have, Babylon. My identity comes from God as, and as me as a child of God, that is the foremost. And he drew the line in the sand and he, and he protested against it. Some, in that case, verbally and went around getting away, um, his way in that. Um, but he also worked for the empire. I mean, think about this. He's one of the top three most powerful people in all of Babylon. At one point, he's leading the astrologers, the magicians, leading people who are doing things that are in opposition to the ways of God, and he's their boss. And so he's seeking the welfare of the city. Remember that Jeremiah passage? Seek the welfare of the city. He's doing that. So by Daniel being present, it gets better. They prosper more. That um, Babylon is more powerful because of Daniel's influence. He's a government employee working in the system that sent him into exile. And in the midst of that, he also not only protests sometimes, but he prophetically calls them to repentance and faith. In chapter 4, he speaks directly to Nebuchadnezzar saying, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. What Daniel is doing here, he's entering into, he's calling Nebuchadnezzar and the kings of his day to recognize that they're not living in line with how God designed it. They need to repent of their sin, but they're also not living ethically, which is for the benefit of the outsider, the oppressed, and the poor. God has a special place in his heart for that group of people. And so Daniel calls the leaders to repentance and to align their lives with the principles that he finds in the law of God. I'll continue. He uses his, learn, uh, his privilege, he leverages it for the sake of the other. In chapter 2, he um, gets the dream and the interpretation 
from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is about to kill everybody that's uh, the uh, the interpreters that weren't able to do it. And Daniel tells him not to and saves their lives. And so he's leveraging what God has given him and privilege for the other's sake. And in the midst of all this, Daniel is not taking credit. He's not pointing to himself, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks. He continually gives God the credit, gives God the um, glory for what's happening. And all this is happening, as we see in this chapter, he's got regular practices of formation. Three times a day, every day, he faces towards Jerusalem and he prays. Now, this wasn't mandated by the scriptures, but this was a practice that he knew he needed to make sure that he reminded himself. Remember, this is later on in his life. He's a senior citizen up to at this point, if you will. And he knows that he needs to do that to be reminded about where he's at and who he is. So what does that mean for us? If, if we have the opportunity and been informed, some of us, by being defensive against, relevance to, purity from, what does Daniel show us? What I would encourage us, and I think there's another way. I would encourage us to mean, what does it mean for us to be faithfully present? To be faithfully present. The New Testament Sermon on the Mount language for this is to be salt and light. That this is the understanding that the, the world that God created is a good thing. That society in and of itself isn't evil, but it's marred by this fallenness and sinfulness of man. So it is uh, intrinsically broken, but it's still good. My friend Chris Gonzalez says it this way. He says, God did not create junk and he will not junk his good creation. And so there's an idea of like what is happening in this world right now matters. But then as salt and light, the, the metaphor is there's a distinctiveness of salt. Salt is not the same thing on which it's put on. So while we are in the world, we are not of the world, Jesus says. We're different from while we're in the midst of. And that dis- dis- difference from has an ability to enhance and to protect. It enhances by making it better. This is the seeking the welfare of the city. This is salt making things more flavorful. This is Daniel using his privilege for the sake of Babylon and for the sake of others. But it also protects. We know that sin has marred everything. And so by being faithfully present, we are protecting the world from the worst of itself. The extent to which sin can go. This is what it means to be faithfully present in, not of. One of, but different from. And so the question is like, okay, what does this look like? How do we do this? And this is where it's hard, okay? I'm going to be the bearer of honest news. There is no one way to do this. There's not. Sometimes, we look to the life of Daniel, sometimes he speaks, sometimes he's silent. Sometimes he calls to repentance and faith. Sometimes he doesn't. Some, his vocation and his calling and what, what he knew is that there were certain times and certain situations that he needed to do some things in order for him to maintain his faithful 
presence. And so there is no prescription on this needs to be done in every situation at every time. So how can we filter this? Let me give you two questions briefly as we come to a close. The first question to guide us on how we can be faithfully present is the, where is the spirit leading? We know that Jesus himself in the incarnation was the epitome, the perfect picture of being faithfully present, fully God, fully man. He literally took on flesh and dwelt among us. But he was distinct from, he didn't, wasn't defiled by being part of, he literally touched what was defiled and allowed it to become pure as opposed to allowing the defilement to come upon himself. Mind-blowing, okay? Jesus was led by the Spirit. He needed the Spirit empowerment so that he could know what to do, when to do it. He only did what the, he saw the Father doing and say what he heard the Father saying. And so you and I likewise, to determine what it means to be practically faithful in every moment, need to be dependent upon and leaning and empowered by the Spirit. But also a second question I submit to you is this. What does love lead us to? Not love in the way of the world that lets you do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. That's not love. But love found in the very person of God. Love that is sacrificial. Love that leverages for the sake of the other. Love that pursues the betterment of not only the city, but the person across from me. Love that preserves sinfulness from going too far. Love that lays down our own desires for the desires of others. That is a picture in how we go about determining what faithful presence looks like. Because that is the way in which salt and light, that's the vision of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the picture of Jesus and the picture of Daniel, that we, by the Spirit of God, are being invited in to join. So I don't know what faithful presence looks like for you right now, but I do know it will be necessary for you to be empowered by the Spirit, and it will be necessary to live it out in order to love, whether it's love your enemy, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, love your neighbor as you love yourself. We need him to guide us every moment. We are a dependent, needy people. And it's from that posture, not from power, not from trying to be one of, not from being distinct only or separate from, but we are a dependent, needy piece, people needing God to show up and guide us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you in the cross died for our sins. We are justified so that we could seek justice. We have been purified in our, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus so we can be amongst the impure and bring your kingdom. Help us learn what it means to be faithful, what it means to be distinct. But Father, help us know what it means to be present, what it means to be one of, to seek the betterment, to seek the welfare, the peace, the wholeness, the shalom of our city. God, may we, your people, 
be so dependent on you that you are able to do things in our midst that changes the lives of those around us. And as a result of your movement and your renewal, we're able to see you at work renewing many of those around us. We need you. Guide us to be faithfully present, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.